we surrender ourselves to your plan and your purpose. We thank you, Father, for utterance today in the Holy Ghost. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Well, we'll let the kids go, dismiss them to their class. The Bible talks about, in many places, in different settings, about our Christian walk and about how important it is for us to walk in the will of God for our lives. And it's a sad thing, but so many Christians never really find the will of God for their lives. They spend their time here on the earth doing whatever they think, feel, believe is right, but never really tap into what God has for them. There are times in our lives when we come to crossroads and those crossroads determine whether or not, or what we do at those crossroads, determine whether or not we will find the will of God for our lives. The Bible speaks of a time when Esther became queen and there was a plot against the Jewish people and they already had the king's consent to destroy the Jewish people in the land. And Esther's uncle went to tell her what it was done and to implore her to seek the king's help in not following it through with that destruction that was soon ahead. And he said something to this effect. He said, who knows but what you have been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. Folks, i got to tell you, I believe we're at one of those crossroads. Spiritually, politically, economically, and just about every way that you could imagine, other way that you could imagine in life. This week, or last, I should say last week, last Sunday, we aired a, a program on TV that we titled, What's Really Going On? It was a message that we taught, I think it was in the month of June. And we talked a lot about the things that were taking place. We talked a lot about politics. We talked a lot about right and wrong, good and evil. And we got more responses from that single program, I did at least, than any other program we've ever aired. And it was all negative. It was all about how I shouldn't be preaching politics. Folks, the Bible says that wisdom cries out in the marketplace. That means the wisdom of God is to be used in the business or financial areas of this world and it also says by wisdom kings reign or kings rule and princes reign which is a clear indication to me that wisdom is supposed to be applied in the political realm as well now there were well let me say right up front I don't have any ill will against anybody there were a couple of the um, responses that we got that dealt in a respectful manner. Most did not. But that's okay. I realize from the things that people tell me how unusual it is for a pastor to speak out in politics. I have people tell me all the time, thank you so much for speaking out and saying what you said about whatever. And so I realize that it's an oddity or a rarity in some people's lives or in some people's experience. But part of what the Lord told me to do when he sent us here over 30 years ago, getting close to 35 years ago now, I guess, he told me that one of the things that he wanted me to do was raise the spiritual ceiling in Southern California. 
Now, in aviation terms, when it's cloudy and the clouds are low, they call that a low ceiling. And that affects what kind of pilots may fly. Because if you're not an instrument-rated pilot, then you're subject to just flying under conditions where the visibility is good. And so when the clouds lift, that's called a higher ceiling. When the, crowd, when the clouds are low, that's called a lower ceiling. Well, spiritually, it works the same way. Spiritually, there are times when the ceiling is high, but there are also times when the ceiling is low. The truth of the Word of God will make you instrument rated so that you can fly not just by what you can see, but by what the instruments reveal to you that you can't see. Well, I've seen some things over the years. You do anything for 30 years, you're going to learn something along the way. Even if you just stumble up on a few things. But I've seen the spiritual ceiling rise. And the only thing I know that causes it to rise is preaching the truth of the word. And things are different now than they were in 30 years ago, 35 years ago. As I said, most of the complaints were about me expressing what I believe were Bible-based opinions regarding political things that are going on around us. But not to be left out, there was one gentleman that told me after preaching the sermon that we preached last week, not the TV sermon, but what we preached here live about the rapture of the church, he let me know that there wasn't a rapture of the church and it was unscriptural and so forth. So for some, at least, last week was False Doctrine Sunday. <laughs> One of the fellows that wrote me is of an evangelistic bend or persuasion. And he pointed out to me how that nothing I said about politics would get anybody saved. And so that was his reason for condemning the service that he listened to on the, on the radio, on the TV. One of the things he said was he noticed that I was beginning to dress like Trump. <laughs> Wait till he sees what I do to my hair. Folks, turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 tells us about the temptation of Jesus. He's launching into his ministry. But before he did, after he was baptized by John in the Jordan River, it says the Holy Ghost descended on him in bodily shape as a dove. And he went, immediately he went into the wilderness. Now the King James translation says he went into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. But that's not really accurate. A better translation would be he went into the wilderness where he was tempted of the devil. God didn't lead him into the temptation. Jesus was in the wilderness fasting and praying about the ministry that God had in front of him. It says that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. So his time of fasting and prayer was, was successful. And that's when he began doing his miracles, including healing and others. I want to pull out one of the temptations. Luke chapter 4, verse 5. It says, And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed in unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them. Now notice this next phrase. For that is delivered unto me. That is delivered unto me. And to whomsoever I will I give it. 
If thou therefore will worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. He used the word to resist the temptation of the enemy. And it was something that he could have done. And it was something that he came to restore. Jesus came to get back the authority that the devil said he had over kingdoms. Now the Bible tells us very specifically, or gives us some examples, specific examples, of how there's an unseen force, a satanic force, a demonic force, that works behind the scenes in nations and governments. We see in Daniel chapter 10, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to go there. There's a lot of things that would be good for us to see. But in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel realized through Jeremiah's prophecy that the captivity of Babylon, or the captivity of Israel under Babylon, was set to end after the 70 years from when whence they first went into captivity. Well, Daniel realizes that that time is getting short. And so he begins to fast and to pray about Israel being released from the Babylonian captivity. And it says that he went on a fast for three weeks. But after that time, after those three weeks, an angel appeared to him and told him that from the first day when he set himself to seek the Lord and to start his fast, on day one, the angel was dispatched to give him the, the revelation that he sought. Well, if the devil, I'm sorry, if the angel was sent on day one, why did it take 21 days to get to him? How far away is heaven anyway? If that's a 21-day trip, then that must be a long distance. But that's not what took place. He, the angel said to Daniel, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. In other words, here's this spiritual force, this unseen force, this unseen influence, hindering the revelation that Daniel was seeking, revelation that God wanted him to have. It's not like God was holding out for 21 days and finally got tired of Daniel's praying and gave in and said, well, all right, I'll tell you. God wanted him to know the first day. But here's this unseen force, demonic force, that's withholding the angel's revelation to Daniel according to what he sought for. It indicated that that unseen force, that prince of the kingdom of Persia that is referred to, was an extremely powerful force because it says the angel told Daniel that if it weren't for Michael the archangel intervening, he wouldn't have made it through. And then he said, after I've delivered this revelation to you, I've got to go back and join back into the fight. Folks, the Bible's very specifically about, about saying that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our fight's not with flesh and blood, even though it looks like the people in, in flesh and blood are operating according to the devil's agenda. They're still not our enemy. They're still not the one who we have a fight with. But there is a very real war going on and taking place. The Bible also tells us in Ezekiel 28 that there's a king of the nation of Tyre that Ezekiel is directed by God to prophesy to or really against. And it talks about his characteristics. And apparently, he had all the tools and all the things that were necessary to be a, a, a powerful dictator, which he was. But then it goes on to say that there's another force behind this king. In fact, it calls this unseen force the king and calls the, the literal king of Tyre the prince indicating that the spiritual force behind him is stronger than his, than his physical force. And it talks about that king of Tyre, that unseen force, being the devil himself. It mentions that he was in the Garden of Eden at the beginning 
It mentions the other works that he has done even before this world was created, according to the Genesis account, and that's really a recreation, not, a, not an original creation. So we see time and time again that there are unseen demonic forces working behind world governments. And just as the, angel, uh, just as the devil told, angel, told Jesus, I'll get it right in a minute, just as the devil revealed to him the authority that he had or the influence he had, the thing that the devil made mention of was his influence over governments. Now, the devil has influence over anybody that will yield to him. But he singled out the authority that had been given to him or delivered unto him over governments, physical governments in this world. Well, if the devil made mention of that as his greatest power or his greatest area of influence, then shouldn't we take that to heart and recognize how that affects us? See, folks, to not do that in my thinking is criminal. For me to pastor you and teach you the truth of God's word but not make mention of the way the devil operates and what the devil's doing in the world around us, that just seems spiritually negligent to me. I wouldn't know how to do that. Well, when the devil says, all these kingdoms of the world are under my authority and they've been delivered unto me, who delivered it to him? It certainly wasn't God. That authority wasn't even God's to deliver. Because we see in Genesis chapter 1 that when God created man, the specific purpose that he created him for was for him to have authority on the earth. It would certainly be forgivable and understood if God said, I need to make man so I can have somebody to fellowship with. But that's not why he made man, at least according to what the scripture tells us. Thank God for the privilege that we have to have fellowship with him. But he made man to have authority over this earth. So any authority that the devil derived through the introduction of sin and the law of sin and death into the world, he didn't get it from God. He got it from Satan. Satan got it from uh, Adam. It was delivered unto him by man, not by God. See, once God gave man authority in Genesis 1.26 over all the works of his hands, that authority was out of God's hands once and for all. It wouldn't have been his to give because he's already given it. So the only possible explanation then was that when the law of sin and death began to take effect in the earth, a portion or a part of that authority was delivered under the devil. Now, folks, we know and we've seen enough in the Scripture and focused on it enough here in recent times to know that the devil travels only one road. There's only one tool he really has to operate with, and that's deception. So that means any authority that the devil is operating in where governments are concerned or in our personal lives, for that matter, is through deception. Now, one of the things that the Bible says Jesus told his disciples about the end times is he said, take heed that no man deceive you. Take heed that no man deceive you. Folks, I've got to tell you, the people that are complaining about me preaching politics are an example of Christians that have been deceived. Jesus said you could tell a tree by the fruit that it produces. Well, what would the fruit be if every pastor, if every minister followed the desire of some and not ever preached politics or pro-politics and government from a biblical standpoint? Quite simply, the devil wins under that scenario. Had one fellow tell me as a part of his complaint that the first part of the service was good, that I was sticking with the word. But then all of a sudden I started preaching my political opinions and I sounded like Fox News. Oh, that I would wish that Fox News would be as conservative as me. 
there was a lot of complaint because I called the coronavirus a hoax. And I probably could have stated that better. The virus itself is not a hoax. But everything that it's been purported and claimed to do to decimate our, the world we live in, that's certainly been a hoax. It's an interesting thing. I just found out recently there was a, a, a I think it, it, he was an episiotomist. I'm not sure what that is. <laughs> and I'm having even trouble, having, even having trouble saying it. And I'm not sure I got that right. But anyway, there was a guy that was a scientist and worked in the areas of vaccines and viruses and so forth in the 19th century. His name was William Farr. And the, he developed or made a statement that became known as Farr's Law. And here's what he said, and this was regarding virus and disease and so forth. Here's what he said. He said, the death rate is a fact. Anything beyond that is inference. The death rate is a fact. Anything beyond that is inference. Everything about this coronavirus pandemic or hysteria started with a guy in England by the name of Ferguson. And he predicted, based on scientific levels and things that were taking place in the area of viruses and so forth, he proclaimed or predicted that 2 million people would die in America from this coronavirus. He said if we locked down, stopped the economy, made everybody wear a mask, not congregate together, and socially distance and all that other stuff. He said if we did that, a million people would still die from the coronavirus. Now this guy is not just some guy that came out of some closet somewhere and hit the scene with this prediction for the first time anybody had ever heard of him. He's well known in the circles that he travels regarding viruses and disease and such. And he's known specifically for making outrageous predictions that don't come true. And the part of this that has really chapped me from the beginning is that the death rate from this coronavirus from the beginning was wildly overestimated. Do you remember this uh, Dr. Burks, the woman that started off with Fauci on Trump's coronavirus team? She's the one that always wore those scarves. She was the first one I heard that questioned the CDC count of deaths. At the time, the death toll was uh, was determined to be or claimed to be 60,000 people. So that was some time ago. It's a little over 200 now, from what I understand. But she said that the CDC's counting of the 60,000 deaths was sub, uh, sub suspect. She estimated it to be closer to 30,000. Folks, that's quite a jump. Now, I don't remember exactly the criteria that she used or why she claimed the death rate or the claimed deaths were greater than what she thought they were. Since that time, however, we found out over the course of time that a lot of the, the counting is inaccurate and boosted for de several different reasons, not always the same reason. But we've also found out that a vast number, a percentage of the new cases are false positives.
Now, here's the question I've got. Why would it be in anybody's best interest to exaggerate the death or to exaggerate the death tolls? Why would anybody want to do that? Who, who benefits from doing that? Every death is tragic. But who benefits from having these overblown projections? Sometime in the early part of September, the CDC coming under fire for the way that they were counting certain things published a report that said that only 6% of the deaths attributed to the coronavirus were actually caused by the virus itself. Now, at the time, the death toll was 153,000. Why would the report of the 6%, which nobody argued, those are their numbers, those are their figures, their statistics. Why didn't they then revise down from that 153 to what the 6% number would be? That's certainly not what happened. It continued along the same path that it was on. Which from what I understand is basically if anybody dies and has the coronavirus, no matter what the cause of their death is, they're attributed as a coronavirus death. That means that anybody that dies from pneumonia that showed signs after their death of the coronavirus, that was treated as a coronavirus-caused death. But nobody can identify those numbers. There's no way you can, can satisfy those numbers because nobody knows. Nobody knows whether that pneumonia would have happened or kicked in if the coronavirus had not been contracted or, or, or not. Nobody can know those things. Now, we're dealing with a coronavirus that has a death rate. Or let me say it this way. The death rate at September the 1st was 0.04%. That means that 99 0.96% of people that contracted the coronavirus survived. How do you have a killer disease that has less than a half of, of a hundredth, well, let me say, has 4.04 hundredths mortality rate? When, you've got it, when you go into the hundreds of a percent to find the death rate, that doesn't seem to fit the worldwide pandemic that it's been given the status to. Now, if you work the numbers again, and it's really difficult to find the CDC's um, posting of the death rate anymore. It's all about how many new cases there are, how many new hospitalizations there are. And the guy that invented the test that's used for coronaviruses, not just this COVID-19, but used for other COVID viruses, he since passed away. But before he passed away, he denounced his own test. He said that it was a poor test to use to identify the presence of a coronavirus. And it was, as I said, he died before the coronavirus, the COVID-19. But this test is called a PRC, I think. And this PRC test takes genetic material from your nasal passages. But the amount of genetic material on a swab is not enough to test according to this 
PCR thing. And so what they have to do is they have to replicate. They call it cycling. They have to replicate the sample to make it big enough to use effectively for a test. Now, if they replicate this, I heard a doctor the other day use this illustration. He said, think of a copy machine. You have to run upwards of 30 times, 30 cycles to get any kind of legitimate estimate or true reading. If it's less than 30 cycles, then almost nobody ever has coronavirus. It's undetectable. If you cycle it more than 40 times, replicate this test genetic material over 40 times, then almost everybody's got it. Which means very simply that the testing process itself becomes the determinant for who has or who has not contracted the coronavirus. But folks, there's no scientific community under any other circumstances that would ever accept that to be factual. But that's how they're testing. So we're in a situation now where it's more of a case-demic than a pandemic. Because the death rate, that's always a fact, has dropped tremendously to where it's almost as if nobody statistically is dying from the virus any longer. But the number of new cases that are being touted or reported are being reported still with the, the, the fear and the, the hysteria that something's still really going on. If you break the numbers down by categories, 0 to 19, the mortality rate or the, the uh, success rate in overcoming the virus is 99.9%. Statistically, nobody under the age of 19 is dying from the coronavirus. The next category from 20 to 30, I think it is, or maybe 20 to 40, is 99.8% recovery. The next category, which is 50s and 60s, that's 99.7% recovery rate. It's only in the 70 plus that there's, a, that there's any real factual death numbers to work from. 70 and older, their recovery rate is 94.6%. So you've got a little less than 5% mortality rate for age 70 and older. And there's a lot of talk among the scientific community that the reason the 70 and older percentile or 70 and older category is such a difference than the younger parts of the study is because of the way that it was handled and put all the older folks in the nursing homes rather than allow them the same opportunities for recovery as the rest of the population. So folks, even though the coronavirus is not a hoax, it's a very real thing. It's not the deadly killer that we've been told that it is. Now another interesting thing, think something you might find interesting, is that Sweden didn't lock down with the other European countries and with America. You know what the difference is in the death rate in America and in Europe? as opposed to the Swedish death rate, they're statistically exactly the same. Meaning we would have had the same results if we hadn't tanked our economy and locked down 
as if we took the road that we did. Statistically, scientifically, I love when people say follow the science. When you follow the science, there was never any real, serious, legitimate need to lock down the country. Now, it's without dispute that there are those who use the lockdown initiative to bypass the Constitution and to impose upon us restrictions that the Constitution does not provide them. The First Amendment of the Bill of Rights says that Congress shall not enact or prohibit any law regarding religious liberty or peaceful assembly. Now, there is no place in the Constitution where any of the Bill of Rights are set aside because of an emergency. The Founding Fathers, who obviously had religious freedom first and foremost on their minds because that's what came about with the Establishment Clause, the First Amendment. The First Amendment doesn't take a holiday because of some tragedy that's going on in the world. At least it's not supposed to. But you know as well as I do, especially with the experience we have living here in California, that mandates were made and restrictions were placed, not according to law, not because of the enacting of some law to provide for the health or the benefit or the welfare of the American people or in this case, California residents. It's just been arbitrarily set aside for somebody claiming power that they, their office doesn't give them. Folks, that's a fact. That's not an opinion. Even if it, the things that were done and the steps that were taken had provided the benefit, which it's hard to say, to say that they have, the Constitution still doesn't give them that right. Now, for people to complain, and they have, a, they have their, a right to their opinion, doesn't matter to me. You don't need to worry. I'm not going to change anything because of the response we get from TV or anything else. What you, get, what you see is what you get, whether you like that or not. But the people that are saying that we should not preach anything regarding the politics... That means one of two things in their thinking. Either the founding fathers were not led of God in spite of the numerous times in the historical record that they talk about divine providence leading them in their decisions to create the foundations for this great country. So either they believe that America the Founding Fathers didn't really establish this country on religious freedom. And without dispute, America has been responsible for well over 95% of all the ministry, evangelism, and missions efforts to the rest of the world. So if you believe that the Founding Fathers wanted to keep religion out of politics, and that should be the pattern that we follow today, then you'd have to conclude that the fact that America has far and above shouldered the responsibility and the financial, especially the financial responsibility for missions and evangelistic efforts around the world, that all had to just come as an accident. Or you'd have to accept that the Founding Fathers did start the country the way that it turned out to be, with freedom of religion that set the stage for America's contribution to the world in missions and evangelistic efforts. You'd have to conclude that the Founding Fathers didn't want that to continue.
that there came some point where politics was supposed to be divorced from religion for some reason, some unstated cause. I don't believe either one of those are true. And that's the reason why I will speak out on politics and political situations. I believe, without a shadow of a doubt in my mind, you, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but beyond a shadow of a doubt in my mind, we're at one of those crossroads. We're at one of those places in this election coming up in just six weeks. Is one of those crossroads. A lot of people say, and I, I certainly agree with it, but I don't use the term the same way they do. It's easy to say that God's not a Republican. God's certainly above politics. But it's, it's without argument that God has favored America as much as or more than any other nation on the face of the earth. And that doesn't even ex, uh, exempt Israel. The hand of God has certainly been upon America. The people that talk about what a terrible place America is and how it has to be reimagined or some silly thing like that, they don't have their eyes open to what's really going on. I want to read to you from 1 Samuel chapter 17. Something that the Lord dealt with me about many years ago. Tells the story of David. You remember how David was the last, didn't turn out to be the last, but as the youngest child was in charge of shepherding his father's sheep and out there by himself he developed his musical ability and his spiritual strength spiritual character to such a degree that he was called before the king to play on his harp to soothe the king and to bring him peace now the Bible tells us about how that Saul had turned his back on the work of God as the king of Israel. I guess we could say it this way. He yielded to the influence of the devil. And began to be influenced even like Satan said in Luke chapter 4. But it tells us that David had three brothers that were conscripted, conscripted into the army of Israel. And things were a little different back then. Since Israel was being attacked in, the, in their own home country at their own borders, people had opportunity to go out and, pro and provide provisions for their family members where they were encamped. And so Jesse, David's father, sent him out with provisions for his three brothers. And when he got there, Goliath came out from the camp of the Philistines and began to rail against God and against Israel as he had for the last month. It just so happened that David was there when he came out Let's start in verse 22. And David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage and ran unto the army and came and saluted his brethren. And as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines and spake according to the same words. And David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. 
And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel is he come up. And it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? And who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. In other words, everybody understood what the reward was. But David wants to make sure there's not false information that comes to him the first time he hears it, so he keeps asking. And everybody says the same thing. Everybody knows the, the reward. And Eliab, David's eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thy heart, for all for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. Now if you turn back a chapter or two, you'll find out that when Samuel, the prophet, went down to Jesse's house, David's father's house, he went under the direction of the Lord to anoint the next king of Israel, the one that would take Saul's place. He didn't know who it was going to be. God didn't tell him. So he went down there expecting God to lead him after he got there, and, and the Lord did. But Eliab, the older brother, that's here ridiculing David in chapter 17, when Eliab, as the oldest, came in before Samuel the prophet, Samuel looked at him and said, man, this has got to be the one. He's got the looks of a leader. He's strong. He's tall. He's good looking. Surely this would be the guy that the Lord wants. But the Lord spoke to him and said, he's not the one I've picked. He said, You've looked on, you and mankind looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Now Saul was the same way that Eliab was. The Bible says that he was a real good-looking guy, a head taller than everybody else. He had the look of a leader, but that didn't make him a good leader. He turned away from what God told him to do and did his own thing. So here's Eliab, the eldest brother, ridiculing David trying to humiliate him when David's asking what the reward is making sure that everybody's on board with this same reward and notice what David said what have I done is there not a cause here's something the Lord showed me through this story many years ago and that is the people that won't join in the fight with you will often condemn you or criticize you for taking up the fight yourself. Eliab could have gone out. He had the same covenant as David had. Eliab could have at any point in time gone out against Goliath and enlisted the Lord's aid to help him overcome and be victorious. But he wasn't willing because of his own fear. He wasn't willing to take up the fight. But those people that won't take up the fight themselves are often the very ones that will criticize you for stepping in to take a stand. So I would ask you, seeing what has gone on in our country for the last several years, seeing the violence and the lawlessness that's taking place in mostly Democrat-controlled cities and states, Seeing what rides on this next election, not just Republican versus Democrat, but good versus evil and light versus dark. Seeing the situation that we're facing, I would ask you what David asked his brother. Is there not a cause? Is there not a cause? Is the importance of saving this nation from being swept under the rug of history by the spirit of the world that's even at work now and very vocal in our society is there not a cause I don't believe there's ever been a bigger cause folks 
I'm not looking for politics to save America. I'm not looking for Donald Trump to be our savior. But just as Jesus said you could judge a tree by the fruit that it produces, the fruit of the Trump administration has been positive in so many ways. He's been a better friend to the church than any other president we've ever had. And that's kind of tough for me to say because I'm a Reagan guy. <laughs> but if you compare the results, there's never been a more pro-life president than Donald Trump. Right. Now, I understand, I understand why some people don't want me to talk politics. Because when you talk politics, you don't have to go very far to start talking about abortion. We're facing a situation where the hearings are about to begin on a Supreme Court replacement for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, RBG, RD, whatever, <laughs> whoever. I'd like to think she's in heaven, but that would be foolish thinking. But what happens next? over this Supreme Court nominee and the hearings and all the things that are yet to come for this new candidate or new nominee. Folks, it all comes down to one thing as far as the Democrats are concerned, and that's abortion. It's sad to realize that a political party is worshiping at the altar of abortion, the murder of innocent children. So what should we do? Should we stick our head in the sand and say that's not what's really going on? Folks, the truth doesn't change whether we acknowledge it or not. And the truth is Satan has found a home in one of the political parties of this country. The people that have complained about my position and my statements regarding politics it's pretty easy to tell which side of the aisle they fall on. And I could well understand if I put myself in their position, which is hard to do, but if I put myself in their position and think that I'm supporting the Democrat Party that supports murder on demand when it comes to abortion, I wouldn't want anybody telling me I was doing the wrong thing either. I wouldn't want to be reminded of my sin. We've all heard statements being made that your, voice, that your voice is heard by the way that you vote. Now think about that in spiritual terms. If your voice is your vote, or if your vote is your voice, then how we vote makes a big difference to God or makes a difference to God only in the degree to which your voice is important. And one of the never-changing eternal laws of God that he said in Numbers chapter 14, as you have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto you. Well, if your voice is your vote or your vote is your voice, then you could readily see that God's going to hold his people responsible for the way they vote because that is the exercise of their authority in the political realm. I wouldn't want to be reminded of that if I was intending to vote against the principles of God do. I wouldn't want anybody to tell me anything that would open my eyes take a different position than the one that I've already committed to. So I get why there's criticism. I get why people are threatening to turn the TV off and stop watching. Although I don't really think they will. Because people that complain have to have something new to complain about. And if they think I'm doing something politically against the Bible up to this point, 
Let me just say they ain't seen nothing yet. Because, folks, if we stand against the spirit of the world in politics, then we're standing against the work of the devil. And we're doing our job to occupy till Jesus comes. Now, that's just very simply how I see things. I think I see them the way that I do because the Holy Ghost lead, has led me there. There were several of the comments or emails that I got that mentioned how much they've received from us, how they enjoy the teaching of the Word and the revelation that's come. But somehow or another, they can't accept the fact or won't accept the fact that just as I allowed the Lord to speak to me about revelation in the Word or revelation of the Scriptures, that's the same way that I seek to find God's direction and revelation where political things are concerned or where any other area of society is concerned. I'm not just sitting around thinking, here's what I want things to be. And every principle that I operate on regarding politics or any other area, I've given you spiritual rec references or a scriptural foundation for why I think the way I do and why I speak the way I, I why I speak the way I speak. Now you may not uh, agree with that, and I understand there's a lot of people that won't agree. But if you're not going to agree, you're going to have to give me scriptural foundation for not agreeing. One of the guys that wrote, and it was fairly respectable his comments but one of the things that he wrote about me expressing my political opinions was Matthew chapter 7 and it says judge not that you be not judged and so forth but he forgot to read 1 Corinthians chapter 2 just like the devil quoted scripture to Jesus when he tempted him to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple Jesus responded with, but it's also written. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, A man that spiritual judges all things. Doesn't say he judges all people. But again, Jesus said you could tell a tree by the fruit that it produces. So we are to judge the fruit as spiritual individuals. The Bible mandates that we judge. All things, including the fruit of the things that are produced. That means we can judge the fruit of political parties and should. That means we can judge the fruit of the coronavirus and the lockdowns and so forth, and we should. It means that we should judge everything that's going on in the world around us for the purpose of exposing and overcoming the work of the devil in the, uh, the world that we live in. And that's part of what the Bible says a spiritual person will do. So I'm back to my original question. Is there not a cause? Have we not come to this place in human history for such a time as this? It's more important for us to stand up and say what we believe and know why we believe what we believe than ever before in the history of the world. The good news is the church is awakened. The good news is that the church is praying more than ever before with a greater understanding of the importance of those prayers. Thank God that He orders our steps. Thank God that the glory of the Lord will be revealed in this earth. That this gospel will be preached in all the world for a witness or with signs and, and evidence, proof. And then shall the end come. Let's pray. Father, we bless your holy name. We thank you 
for the wisdom of God that your word provides to us. Father, we know that it's your will for us to live quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. We know that it's your will for all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So, Lord, we pray for a moving of the Holy Ghost. We ask you for the reign of God to fall upon our world, to fall upon our country, to fall upon our state. We ask that you would move by the Spirit of God to bring forth the last day harvest, the precious fruit of the earth. We know you have long patience for it, Jesus, until you receive the early and the latter rain. And so, Father, we pray for our president. Even as you told us to pray for leaders, rulers of governments. So we pray for our president. We pray for his advisors, his cabinet members, all those that he surrounded himself with. Give them divine wisdom and guidance, Father, that they might navigate the minefield of American politics. Father, we pray for this Supreme Court nominee. She's a believer. You live on the inside of her. And we pray that you would strengthen her to be able to answer her enemies, to be able to answer the adversaries that will array themselves against her. Father, we pray that you would expose the plans of the enemy. Shed the light on the truth, light of the truth, upon everything that the devil is doing in the world around us. Now, Father, we pray that every person would come to see your mercy, come to see your goodness in providing Jesus as their Savior. But, Lord, we know that there are those who have willingly joined themselves to the devil's agenda. They see what they're doing. They know what they're doing. We pray that those would come to ruin in Jesus' name. Father, your word says the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, that you can turn it whithersoever you will. Turn President's heart to wherever you will. Give him wisdom to know what to do and how to do it and even when to do it that your will might be accomplished in this earth. Father, we see our time is short. And we know there's a great work to be done. And we ask you, Father, for bring bring in, to bring in multitudes of people into the kingdom of God. Father, show those that are unsaved whose hearts are open. Show them your goodness, your mercy, your power. But, Lord, show them that to be on your side is to be on the winning side. And when I'm talking about winning, Father, you know I don't just mean winning elections or winning politically. Show that you're the God of this nation. Show that we've done all these things at your word. Show your healing mercy. Show signs and wonders and miracles in the name of Jesus. And Father, I pray for those that are in the ministry that you would grant unto your servants boldness to speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done in the name of thy holy child, Jesus.
We know Jesus is coming for a triumphant church, a glorious church. Show your glory in us. Let it be even as it was when Moses was in your presence and came down from the mountain. His face shined with the glory of God. Let our faces shine with your glory too, Father. Manifest the greater glory, the glory of the latter-day church, to be even greater than the former. In Jesus' precious name.